the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Our podcast is sponsored by Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF provides help at no cost to those whose liberty is being violated, but they can't do it without your help. Call 800-691-8969. That's 800-691-8969. Or visit townhallreview.com. Pleased to welcome now Justice Neil Gorsuch of the United States Supreme Court. He is the author of a brand new book, A Republic, If You Can Keep It. It's in bookstores now, available at Amazon.com. And he becomes the third Justice of the Supreme Court to do the show with me, Justice Breyer, a few years back, a few years before that, Justice Thomas. Justice Gorsuch, welcome. Good to have you on the Hugh Hewitt Show. It was a pleasure to meet you last week in California. It was a fascinating hour at the Nixon Library at Ch- when Chapman University Fowler School of Law, Dean Matt Parlow interviewed you. I get the second at bat, and I'm glad because I got to hear everything you answered, and I get to use the best stuff from Matt's interview with you and add a little bit. If you don't mind, I'd like to dive into, before we get to originalism and textualism, I'd like to begin with the parts of your book uh, that deal with your two mentors, your two justices, Justice Byron White and Justice Anthony Kennedy, because they're both amazing portraits Justice White is this superhuman human figure, but his walk among the portraits with you is a very memorable part of a republic, if you can keep it. Tell us about that. Certainly a memorable moment in my life. I was his law clerk about 30 years ago now, and we were walking down the hallway in the Supreme Court of the United States where all the portraits of the former justices hang. And he leaned over to me and he asked me, Neil, how many of these old guys do you actually know the name of? And in a moment, I had to realize I, I had to give an answer that was going to embarrass me. And I said, honestly, Justice, about half. And then he said something that really shocked me here. He said, me too. And then he said, and that's exactly how it should be. And I'm going to be forgotten soon enough. And I thought to you that that was incredibly sad, and I couldn't possibly believe it, because as a kid growing up in Colorado, Byron White was my superhero. He had led the NCAA in rushing while I graduated first in his class from the University of Colorado, top of his class at Yale Law School, clerk to the Supreme Court, Rhodes Scholar, led the NFL in rushing, and was the highest-paid football player of his day, Jack Kennedy's friend, helped Bobby Kennedy desegregate the South and served 31 years on the United States Supreme Court. Wow. And I, and I thought, how, how could anybody, anybody ever forget Byron White? Well, and, and, I, I now realize, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and yet his prophecy has come to pass, by and large, except among aficionados of the court. I, I walk past his portrait every day, and I see tourists and lawyers staring at it quizzically, wondering who he is. And, and I've come to realize, too, that he wasn't telling me something sad, and he, he wasn't melancholic about it. He was embracing a truth that he found joyful. He gave up a lot of money. He gave up a lot of prestige and power and fame to serve. 
because he loved this country and he loved this constitution and he knew that the great joy in life isn't being remembered. It's carrying on the torch of our liberties and our constitution for the next generation. That's what he was trying to teach me that day. It is a great story in a republic if you can keep it. And I like the fact that you mix high constitutional theory with some vivid portraits that most people don't get. One more, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Again, you clerk for him. But I believe in the first uh, instance of this occurring on the Supreme Court, you also served with him. And there comes a moment when you are given your first opinion by the bench to write as one of the nine. And it gets circulated for the other eight to either join, concur in, or dissent. Can you tell us the story of what Justice Kennedy did and why he did it? Anthony Kennedy is one of the most kind, civil, decent human beings. No matter when people are being on him from this direction or that direction, he's always steady and always kind. And for me, this story is what he's all about as a person and as a professional. So, yes, I, I had the great pleasure of being the first law clerk to serve with his former boss on the Supreme Court of the United States. And I got my first assignment for the court. And as usual, with a new justice, they give you one that they know is going to be a 9-0, and people are going to join up quickly, and it's not going to be a problem. Well, I, I circulated my opinion late in the day. I've been working on it all day. The justice had gone home. Um, but when he got wind that I had circulated the opinion, he, he wanted his law clerk to fax it out to him as fast as possible at his house so that he could be the first to join. He didn't want anybody else to beat him to the punch. Well, his fax machine turned out to be broken that evening, so he had his law clerk drive it out, and later that night I got a handwritten note from Justice Kennedy joining my opinion. And to me, that's, that's just exactly who he is. It's one of the touches in the rubber public, if you can keep it, like Justice Ginsburg returning to you, Justice White's well, handbook on clerks. Is that what we call it? Well, yeah, kind of, yeah. So, so uh, when I was Justice White's law clerk, he retired, and his successor was Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Justice White put together his law clerk manual, instructions to his law clerks how to run the office, what to do, what not to do. And, and he had us deliver it over to her, her new chambers. He wrote some typically humble note saying, you know, Dear Ruth, uh, here's my law clerk manual. I you may find it of use. I don't have much use for it anymore myself. Well, within the first week of my arrival at the court, about 25 years later, I get a note from Justice Ginsburg saying, Welcome, Neil. You may recognize some of this. Um, it's what was given to me 25 years ago. I, I hope I've improved it a little bit along the way. You see, that's very wins. I also thought the tradition of 36 handshakes. And I, I know some of the justices. I've known some in the past. I've never read this or heard this before. I've heard a lot about the traditions, visited the court. But the 36 handshake routine is something I think most Americans will find reassuring, at least those listening right now. And people read about it at length in a republic, if you can keep it. But just the brief version of it. Sure. Um, every time we meet, whether it's going into argument or a conference or really any other time, no matter how tense the moment or difficult the issue, and we have those moments, of course, everybody shakes everybody else's hand. Um, that's how we start, and that's a tradition that goes back over 100, maybe 150 years. It has the effect of, of what, disarming people? Very hard to get mad at no. someone you've just shaken hands with. 
exactly or or uh, had lunch with and we do that all the time as well and we don't talk business at lunch or sing happy birthday to off key usually but always enthusiastically or flip hamburgers with the employee picnic or trick or treated around the building with young children together those are all things that we do it's a difficult job and yes we will disagree but it's a place where we're able to disagree without being disagreeable with one another by and large now in your book Justice Gorsuch as you did at your appearance at the Nixon Library, you spend a lot of time trying to get non-lawyers and lawyers alike to understand why you have James Madison on the wall of your chambers and why the separation of powers he designed, first for the Virginia plan and ultimately as it emerged in Philadelphia in 1787, why that separation of powers is so important right now, right today, for everyone listening to this show. Can you tell people why that is? Well, you, everybody knows how the First Amendment contributes to their liberty, the Bill of Rights. It's kind of obvious, right? But the separation of powers, it sounds like high school civics. And, and I, I'm just here to tell you, I, I think the separation of powers is the key to our liberty, and James Madison knew it. There are great bills of rights around the world. Ours is kind of among the better ones, but maybe not the best. My, my personal favorite is North Korea. It promises all the rights to find in our Bill of Rights, plus the right to free education, and even a right to relaxation. But, of course, those rights don't mean anything. They're not worth the paper they're written on, because all power is concentrated in one person's hands. And what Madison knew is that men are not angels, and that the real guarantee for the promises of the Bill of Rights is some enforcement mechanism, and that's the separation of powers. So I am one-ninth of one-third of our federal government, which is one-half of our government in the United States. And... You know, all that sounds pretty civics and high school stuff. And, and it really was to me until I became a judge and I started to see you how when we muddle up the separation of powers, it affects real people in real cases and harms real lives. And I got plenty of examples if, if you had. The, the, um, the examples in the book are terrific. Uh, we can pick up a couple of those, but... but... First of all, I'd, I'd like to ask you a very surprising part of your book is your concern for access to justice. This is not something sure. people normally associate with uh, judges who are believed to be originalists and textualists like you are. But access to justice is a theme throughout a republic if you can keep it. Why? Well, I think we have a problem when, as a lawyer, I couldn't even afford my own services. <laughs> and I sure as heck can't afford them now. Um, Words are too expensive. It takes too long to get to trial. When you get there, you don't get a jury anymore. And just about everything, as I can tell, is a federal crime these days. And I, I think we have to ask ourselves, as great as our rule of law is in this country, and as proud as I am of our Constitution and our legal system, is there room for improvement? And you know, I think it's a problem when good claims, people can't bring them to court. And I think it's a problem when bad claims get settled for more than they're worth because of the cost of litigation. We have, we have trial lawyers in America who call themselves trial lawyers who haven't tried a case. But they can write interrogatories, questions to one another, and I am a contender. That's a problem. You know, I think Dean Parlow almost had a heart attack when you said law schools could be one year, and thereby reducing the cost of the legal degree and the, and the pressure on a young lawyer to go out and make money. Uh, did you really mean that, or was that a good way to just put an idea in play for the bar and the and the academic side of the law? 
I think we have. I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm serious about that. Um, why does everybody who provides legal services, no matter how simple in this country, have to attend two years of postgraduate legal education? I do not understand that. Um, in England, uh, you can become a lawyer through three years of undergraduate study or one year graduate conversion course. And I think the rule of law is pretty strong there, too. Um, I also wonder why it is that we don't let non-lawyers, people that maybe a paralegal degree, why can't they help with simple things like uncontested divorces, simple contracts, wills? I can go to a superstore and I can get medical services, I can get banking services, accounting services. Why, why, can't, why can't I get a legal professional to help me with simple things? It's a question that I really do believe the ABA ought to take up and experiment with, and the first state that does that will benefit from it almost immeasurably. Let me go back to the separation of powers, Justice Gorsuch, and let's talk about the regulatory state. Uh, The kudzu of agency rulemaking, I believe, threatens, maybe counterintuitively for people, because it's it's called rulemaking. I think it threatens the rule of law. Uh, When reading A Republic, if you can keep it, I came away persuaded you agree with that position. Well, what I would say to that is that when you start allowing different powers that are supposed to be separate to become muddled, it shouldn't surprise anybody that your freedom is going to be at stake. And so, for example, when the legislature allows the executive branch to write laws, what's going to happen? In Madison's design, the legislature was supposed to be hard and public business and slow and deliberative. But when you move it away from that process, 435 members, two houses, to one president, you're going to have a lot of law happening quickly, and minorities and vulnerable people are going to be affected first and foremost. And I've seen that as a judge time and time again, and I'll give you one example of a small business in Colorado called Caring Arts that provided home medical care services to elderly. Well, the federal government had made up so many rules about how that care should be provided by using essentially legislative power in the executive branch, some of them backed by threats of criminal sanction, that they stopped being able to keep track of it. And they accused caring hearts of Medicare fraud, trying to run them out of business, for violating rules that didn't even exist at the time they provided their care. Their care was perfectly compliant with all the rules in existence at the time. Even the federal government cannot keep up with its rules. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is just about everybody seems to be a federal criminal these days. Huh. Um, you know, if you, sell, if you sell mattresses, do not remove that tag. You're a federal criminal if you do. Um, you know, you remember Woodsy the Owl? Yep. Don't pollute? Yep. Well, you know, if you misuse his likeness, you are a federal criminal. I've got, I've got law professor friends who say just about everybody in America who's over age of 18 has probably committed a federal crime. Well, the growth of law is not always a positive development. Let, let me ask you about originalism. Uh, eight years ago, September 15th of 2011, Justice Breyer, your, your friend and colleague, was my guest for an extended conversation about his then new book, Democr- Making Our Democracy Work. So you've come along now with a republic if you can keep it. He was talking about democracy. You're talking about republics. Fascinating distinction. But it was a great conversation I had with him. We disagreed about originalism, though, with Justice Breyer at one point telling me, George Washington didn't know about the Internet, Hugh, to which I responded, 
George Washington knew about liberty. That's about as concise a summary of the debate between the living Constitution theorists and originalists. Can you tell people why you are proud to be an originalist? I am very proud to be an originalist, and I'm unashamed of it. Now, I don't like the branding that's been done, right? Because the other side, they like to call themselves living constitutionalists, as if I like a dead constitution, as if as if originalism is all about powdered wigs and horses and buggies. Well, that's not how I see it at all. Originalism is all about honoring the Constitution as it's written, and that includes not just the original Constitution, but its amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, the 14th, the 15th Amendments, the 19th Amendment that gave women the right to vote. Those amendments, I like to think of them as our second Constitution. Originalism honors them all, and it says that it exerts should enforce those guarantees and that they are timeless. Our Constitution is timeless and enduring, and judges should not be in the business of changing it. And I tell you, when, when you allow judges to go on this living constitutional road, they start taking away your rights and they start adding rights that we the people, and those are the first three words of our Constitution, that we the people never agreed to. There, there are not only original meetings, there are original readings. I. I quoted to Justice Breyer, I want to quote to you, my favorite bit of constitutional history is from the Massachusetts Ratification Convention, January 25th, 1788. A Mr. Smith rises up and he says, quoting now, Mr. President, I am a plain man and I get my living by the plow. I'm not used to speaking in public, but I beg your leave to say a few words to my brother plow joggers in the house. When I saw this constitution, I found that it was a cure for our disorders. It was just such a thing as wanted. I got a copy of it, read it over and over. I had been a member of the convention to form our own state constitution and learned something of the checks and balances of power. And I found them all there, and I did not go to any lawyer to ask his opinion. We have no lawyers in our town, and we do well enough without. I formed my own opinion, and I'm pleased with this constitution. Now that, Justice Gorsuch, to me, was brilliant, but it seems that we have made an oracle of a document that was understood uh, was written by farmers and intended, very wealthy farmers, but farmers, intended to be read, understood, and approved or put down by farmers, but now it's an oracle. How did that happen? Well, I, you know, here's what really persuaded me, Hugh, that, uh, of becoming an originalist. It really started in law school. I, I hadn't heard the word originalism that stood there until Justice Scalia came and gave a lecture. And he was about as far into his tenure then as I am now. That was the first time anybody talked about originalism in a sustained way at Harvard Law School 30 years ago. We've come a long way, I'm happy to say. Now, back then, the Harvard Law Review wouldn't even publish his speech. He had to give it to another law school's reader publisher. <laughs> oh, wow. But, but the fact of the matter is that originalism is all about making sure exactly what you're talking about. The people know what their rights are, and that if they wish to add them, they do it, not judges. So here's what happens in the real world. But what persuaded me was, again, living life as a lawyer and as a judge, um, not academic books, real cases. Take the Sixth Amendment. It guarantees you a right to a jury trial when you're accused of a crime by the federal government. It also guarantees you a right to confront your accusers. Well, living constitutionalists have said, because there are other important things that we think are more important Sometimes you don't have a right to a jury. And sometimes, instead of facing your accuser and being able to cross-examine him, 
a piece of paper written by a police officer out of court is enough to send a person away for 20 years or more. Originalism says no to that. I can read those words on a page. A farmer can read those words on a page. We know what they are. Here's another one. Not only do they take stuff away, they put stuff in there that isn't there. And my, 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 my favorite example of this, and though there are many, is Dred Scott. It was the first time the Supreme Court really departed from the original meaning of the Constitution. And there the court said that a white man has the right to own a black person in the territories of the United States because of an emanation from a penumbra around the Due Process Clause in the Fifth Amendment. We'll scour the Due Process Clause as long as you want, and that right isn't there. And these living constitutionalists think they're doing it for good reason. Sometimes I think they are often well-intentioned. Back then, they thought they were trying to help avert the Civil War. Of course, judges make rotten politicians. Instead, they actually contributed to the onset of the Civil War. The fact is, all originalism is about is recognizing that it's our job to respect the Constitution, not to rewrite the Constitution. And nine people in Washington were never meant to rule a nation of 330 million Americans. Now, now, Justice, the companion to originalism is textualism. And at great length in a republic, if you can keep it, and accessible to laymen, you make the argument for textualism. But you also noted when you were at the Nixon Library with Dean Parlow that it's pretty tough to have gone to law school when I did, 80 to 83, and not get sheep-dipped in legislative history. And that there is a great temptation there. And you quote Bork about the temptation. You can find whatever you want in legislative history. So I agree with you. My question is, you know the legal academy, and they're all good-hearted people, or most of them are, but they're all pretty much anti-textualists. How in the world will the next generation of lawyers not be sheep-dipped in a living constitution, expansive, interpretive mode of judging? Well, I plan to do my part in talking about this, too, and I'm glad you are, and I think we're actually making tremendous progress. Um, I think uh, at least young people today are being taught what these things are in law school. That didn't happen when you were there. It certainly didn't happen when I was there. So I'm optimistic. I'm very optimistic. I, I meet young people every, every day who are eager to come into public service, who want to help America, who recognize that our Constitution is the greatest charter of human liberty in history, and are eager, like Byron White, to dedicate their lives to its service. So I've got two, nothing two, but optimism. Two final questions, Justice Gorsuch. You've been very generous with your time. We loved having you at the library. Come back on the show. A republic, if you can keep it everywhere. But you met my wife, the fetching Mrs. Hewitt, I call her on the show. She was most enamored of your appeal for manners, your appeal for civics, and your aside that it was good to be west of the Mississippi. And we had a long talk about that phrase on the way back. She's a Californian through and through. I'm a Buckeye, but she's a Californian. Is there something to that that Byron White got and that you get that it's just different? People's attitude towards liberty is different in the West? Well, I feel it when I come home and when I'm in the Rocky Mountain West. I see it in the people I meet. And I, when I go back east, I don't have to, I, I sort of have to explain when I'm telling a joke about prairie dogs, I, I inevitably get asked, what is a prairie dog? <laughs> so, so there is a lot about the American West that's deep in my soul, and I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't mean to be 
parochial. I, I love every bit of this country, but I was certainly shaped by the American West. Uh, my last question. I, I asked you this aside, and you may not want to answer it on the air, but uh, as a Michigan lawyer, I'm a little bit upset that every member of the Supreme Court is from Harvard or Yale Law School. Although Justice Ginsburg did her final year at Columbia, that's a bad message to send. Now, I'm not asking anyone to turn down the call when the president calls you up and go up, no matter if you're alum of a school that's already there. But over time, don't we have to avoid the idea that there's an elite within an elite within an elite? Well, now, Hugh, we have great geographical diversity of representation among the boroughs of New York. <laughs> That's true. And we're, That's the... and we're working our way out from there, all right? We're working on it. Justice Gorsuch, it was great to have you. The book is A Republic. If you can keep it, come back. And congratulations, the New York Times bestseller. Good luck in the new term at the court. Thank you so much, Hugh. Hey, thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Our podcast is sponsored by Alliance Defending Freedom. ADF provides help at no cost to those whose liberty is being violated, but they can't do it without your help. Call 800-691-8969. That's 800-691-8969. Or visit townhallreview.com. This is Jerry Boyer of Town Hall Finance for townhall.com. If the goal of the trade war is to hurt China as we push them to change, it's working. China's economic growth rates are definitely falling. But as we recently showed on Town Hall Finance, the jobs are leaving China, but they're not coming to the U.S. Jobs are heading to other parts of emerging Asia, often still employed by Chinese-owned companies. And doesn't that make sense? As we slap tariffs on China, markets push supply chains further down the labor scale, not up to higher-wage America. Markets are highly fluid. Throw a rock in the stream, and the water finds its way around it. For most of human history, China was the world's economic superpower. The U.S. did not surpass China until we abolished slavery, repealed the wartime income tax, and established sound money. We need to go back to that basic formula, the one that permitted us to end Chinese dominance in the first place. Universal human dignity, low taxes, and sound money. Sponsored by ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.